All right, it's time for this week's Chip Chat. Joined by Chip Gibbons, journalist, policy director over at Defending Rights and Dissent, though he speaks only on his own behalf for Chip Chat every week. Hey, Chip. Hello, how are you doing? Doing well, doing well. So there is a new documentary out called MLK FBI. You can uh, take a guess at what the subject matter of the documentary is. Um, You have a piece in Jacobin. You watched the film. You wrote about it. Um, You watched it twice. I watched every film twice before reviewing it and forming an opinion on it, yes. Do you you read every book twice before uh, forming an opinion on it as well? No, I do not. Can I just say that's that's a really good practice because there will be often times where I watch a movie once and someone asks me about it the next day and I'm like, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> I do not remember most movies I've ever seen. Like <laughs> Every movie twice, usually within a 24-hour period before forming an opinion on it. All right, well... Uh, like you rent movies from like Amazon or whatever. You only have 48 hours to watch. And I feel like if I spent this three ninety nine, I have to watch it at least twice. That's the, that's the real reason. But I, I've turned this into a more... Uh, intellectual explanation. You could always set up a camcorder in your own house in front of the TV, like those old school uh, uh, pirated movies. Yeah, I could do that. (laughs) So you watched the movie twice, Chip. Look, this is obviously a a story that, you know, most most leftists are pretty familiar with, how the FBI surveilled uh, Martin Luther King. But we should always uh, keep talking about it. Um, what is, is there anything new that was revealed in this documentary or a new frame that was put on this, on this story that uh, struck you when you were watching it and so, writing this review? I am actually going to object to the statement that most leftists are familiar with how the FBI surveilled MLK. I think most, maybe not, maybe not how, but just that it yes, happened. They know that it happened. Yeah. And I think this is one of those topics where we all are so familiar with it, our knowledge of it has actually gotten poorer as a result of like not knowing any specifics. Like as someone who spends an enormous amount of time thinking about FBI surveillance and looking at what other people say on the topic and looking at what like NGOs say and then like going back and like reading the church committee report and things like that. Um, you know, I, I I think we've really lost the specifics in this history, and maybe it doesn't matter, maybe it does, but, you know, for a lot of people, the story of the surveillance of MLK is all about Pro because all FBI surveillance all the time was Pro, and, of course, in the late 60s, they had the uh, Pro program against, quote-unquote, black hate groups, which isn't covered in the movie, but was, a vet, or I think it covered a little bit, and was eventually um, sort of reworked to to cover King. But the FBI's surveillance of King originally starts under their anti-communist mandate. It starts as part of a program called Common Fill or Communist Infiltration, which is also how the FBI spied on the precursor to defending rights and dissent, um, which basically the FBI had this broad sort of counter-subversive mission, which they could use to spy on the Communist Party, and they took that one step further and said certain groups or movements were likely to be targeted by the Communist Party for influence. And therefore, since those groups could, not even were, could be infiltrated by the Communist Party, the FBI had grounds to surveil them. And the surveillance on Dr. King doesn't actually start till 1962. 
And the motivating factor is his relationship with a gentleman named Stanley Levinson. Uh, Levinson is a white man, a Jewish man. He's an attorney. He, in the 50s, had been a supporter of the Communist Party. Um, I, I, but I don't believe he, he was introduced to King by uh, Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin, of course, had in the 30s been a member of the Communist Party, but left and was a, a Quaker and a pacifist. And then in the 60s and 70s, a really fanatic, fanatical and, and dogmatic Cold War era anti-communist. A lot of his supporters on, on, on the left today like to admit that. And I do think Bayard Rustin was a figure in many praiseworthy things, but I don't think you just sort of cut off you know, last one. Anyway, so he introduces King to this white Jewish ex or current communist. And, and Hoover takes that information, Jake Hoover takes that information personally to Robert F. Kennedy, who signs an order to wiretap, um, to wiretap uh, Levison, not King. And, and in those days, wiretaps are sort of questionable legality in, in the 30s. Congress passes a law that is perceived of as banning wiretaps. Uh, it doesn't allow the information to be entered into a court from like 36 to 68. You cannot use the fruits of a wiretap in a court. But this theory basically emerges that since national security wiretaps are not about uh, putting evidence in a court of law for criminal prosecution, um, you know, they don't violate they don't violate the statute. So you have this system where the attorney general can sign off in the matters of national security, which are defined then as like treason, sabotage, espionage, and subversion, subversive activities. Um, they can sign off. So RFK signs off on this wiretap of this gentleman, Stanley Levison. Uh, and when King visits the White House in 63, this is how, how high it goes. When King visits the White House in 63 with the other organizers, of the March on Washington, who I, I presume are Randolph, A. Philip Randolph, the labor organizer. And I, I don't know if Rustin was invited or not because he was, he was gay, I imagine. He was probably not invited to the White House, but I, I don't know. Um, and and, and, and J John F. Kennedy, Robert's brother, of course, uh, asked Martin Luther King to stay behind in the, and they go for a walk in the Rose Garden, and he tells him he has to cut off all ties with Levison. Like, that is how high the effort goes to get Martin Luther King to break ties with one of his closest advisors, Stanley Levison. And at some point, they start wiretapping a man named Clarence Jones as well, who's a King associate. And, and from these wiretaps, the FBI learns two things. Well, they learn three things. They learn three things. Um, one is that Levison is no longer an active communist, which you would think would, would end the wiretaps. Two is that Martin Luther King did not tell John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy the truth. He is associating freely, as one can do in a free country, with the advisors of his choosing. And three is that Martin Luther King has some um, personal relations that are not with his wife. Um, they, they pick that up because he calls... Um, one of his extramarital friends on, on Jones's phone. And at this point, the FBI goes to Robert F. Kennedy and tells him that King has deceived you and your brother about his relationship with Levinson. You have to wiretap him. 
And at this point, Robert F. Kennedy, this is 63 or 64, Robert F. Kennedy approves the wiretap on King to find out if he's being influenced by communists. Not to find out if he is a communist, which, to be clear, being a member of the Communist Party is protected by the First Amendment of our, of our Constitution. Um, but to find out, basically, if he's talking to communists and, and what they're saying to him. Though the film implies the real reason the real reason is to um, learn more about these extramarital relations and create sort of a, a master dossier of dirt on King and use that to expose and humiliate him. And throughout this time, the FBI is record putting microphones in hotel rooms and recording what's going on there. And they're sharing that information with journalists, with, with clergy, with civil rights leaders, in hopes of sort of getting them to turn on King. And no one will take the information. And then infamously, uh, William Sullivan, the director d director of domestic intelligence of the FBI under Hoover, um, writes this letter claiming that he's a disillusioned black supporter of King and that King should go kill himself with this audio tape where the FBI took sort of a number of their pornographic recordings and spliced them all together and sent them to him um, in the hopes that he would kill himself. And and it's interesting because, at, you know, JFK is, is, is killed and Johnson becomes president. And, and Johnson is a pretty big uh, supporter of King publicly. He invites him to, to the signing of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. King is one of the people who get the pen. You know, they, they sign with like 10 different pens and give them out to, to important people. Uh, and at the same time, he's getting all this information from Hoover on, um, you know, King's sex life, um, to put it bluntly. And, 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 but then in, in 67, you know, King criticizes the Vietnam War. Um, he had done so in 65, but he'd been rebuked by sort of liberal establishment types. And it really weighs heavily on his conscience and he's, he's getting on a plane to Jamaica and he gets a copy of the now defunct radical publication Ramparts, which has all these pictures of children just 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 burned by, by palm. And that really weighs on his conscience. And then on um, April the 4th, 1967, uh, one year to the day, and I've been told one year to the minute of his assassination, he gives his famous speech on, on the Vietnam War, at which point Johnson and the liberal establishment no longer have any use for him. And really the gloves, Coover is, is you know, encouraged to go even further than he was going before. And in the final months of his life, he is preparing to bring four people of all races to, to Washington to do like an Occupy style encampment. And the FBI is gearing up this sort of like master dossier of like, alleged bad acts and then he is of course killed i think that's a that's a that's a good summary of of it all there and i i think that looking back on all these events from today one thing that i didn't fully realize um especially given the the popularity of martin luther king in our society today and the sort of unpopularity of figures like j edgar hoover um at the time, it was reversed. Hoover was actually an incredibly popular figure in American society, more popular than Martin Luther King was, which it, it really raises the stakes of, of, of fear and the bind that MLK finds himself in when he's subject of this surveillance and attacks of the FBI is that 
the the person who's doing this against him is extremely popular within the American public. Yeah, I mean, Hoover was wildly, wildly, wildly popular with the American people. I, I cannot stress that enough. Um, and, you know, J. Edgar Hoover calls King the most notorious liar in, in the nation. And they have this public spat where King goes and meets them in his office. It's sort of like this semi-public spectacle. Press are not there, but they're outside the door. And I, I don't think you can generally just wander the halls of the FBI with a camera unless you're invited. I don't know. I've, I've not tried. I, I suspect I would I would not get very far, um, you know, waiting outside the director's door to yell, you know, um, Christopher Ray, Mr. Ray, Mr. Ray, one question for you, one question for you, Mr. Ray. I, I don't think you get to do that unless you're invited. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe things are different then. Uh, and like the movie talks about this poll that like, 50% of Americans sided with Hoover, 15% sided with King, and the rest had no opinion. I, I'm surprised that many had an opinion. But, you know, in the last year of King's life, after he attacked the Vietnam War, he's extremely unpopular. His favorability ratings with, with Black Americans is also, like, negative. And, like, the NAACP breaks with him. Like, King is an extremely unpopular figure the last year of his life and he's extremely isolated because he's making these critiques of u.s the u.s war in vietnam he's making these critiques of u.s capitalism and building this sort of multi-racial sort of social democratic movement with the poor people's movement and that um you know challenging imperialism and even just like some of the worst successes of capitalism like not even just its worst features does not win you many friends in the United States. So, with all this intense surveillance of King, uh, it seems like the feds probably should have known that uh, someone wanted to assassinate him. And I know that government agencies, there has been some findings in court that government agencies were culpable in a wrongful death in King's wrongful death, and that's often uh, exaggerated uh, by meme makers who say, like, you know, did you know that the, the Justice Department was found guilty of murdering MLK? So I guess with that, I'm just curious, you know, from your research and from watching this film, did they sort of talk about uh, what the F, like, how uh how, how the assassination was sort of allowed okay. to happen with this level of intense surveillance on him the film gives some some gives attention to that subject and it's it's one of the more interesting parts of the film because they have an fbi agent they're interviewing I believe his name is charles knox who i assume was on the bureau during the king assassination i don't know they, they sort of introduced him as an fbi agent i assume he knows what he's doing there um and he mentions that he never saw any evidence that headquarters knew of the assassin and failed to stop, but that he always wondered that. And everyone, I assume he means everyone at the Bureau, always wondered that because it's a legitimate question and it's the impossible question not to ask that if they're doing this intensive surveillance on King, how do they not know about an assassination plot? Uh, the group I work for, the person who founded it, Frank Wilkinson, he had a 132,000-page FBI file that came out in the 80s. And one of the things that came out was the FBI believed he would be assassinated while speaking at someone's home 
as part of a, an ACLU event, and they sent two agents who sat outside not to intervene, but just record the assassination. And they were surprised the assassin never came. So, like, there is zero question in my mind if the FBI knew of an assassination plot against Martin Luther King, they would not have stopped it, right? If they won't stop the plot against Frank Wilkinson, they're not going to stop it against Martin Luther King, I, I assure you. Um, and, you know, where do you go from there? I mean, the King's family, his associates who were present, they don't believe James Earl Ray, the man who went to prison for killing King, was involved at all. That's uh, a belief on one end of the spectrum. And I, I, I understand why they think that, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, they're sort of lambasted in the media as though they're like 9-11 truth or something like that. I, I, I think it's I think it's a legitimate reason why people who were present at the Lorraine Motel don't believe the official story. I, I, there's just at the end of the day, it's not like Fred Hampton where there's like pretty conclusive evidence. It's sort of all very speculative. I mean, Ray is supposedly a low level criminal and he's captured in London with two fakes, two forged Canadian passports on his way to Rhodesia. I, 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 <laughs> not I, something I that low level criminals can usually pull off. I mean, I don't know what passports were like in the 60s. You know, they may have been pretty unsophisticated. I, I, I don't know. I go back and forth on this one. Like maybe I just don't understand how easy it is to forge passports uh, uh, in the 60s. You just take a picture and stick it on a piece of paper and say, oh, I'm a Canadian. He also didn't get very far. Does it get into the John Birch Society at all and their kind of involvement in uh anti-mlk activities there's i mean they were taking out ads about killing king beforehand there's there's nothing in the film about private actors that's a good question and i think i i, I do think there's a lot of open questions about the king assassination unfortunately there aren't like firm answers people sometimes sort of go from like there's questions with the official story to this proves my alternative explanation that has uh even bigger questions about it but i i i do think there are a lot of legitimate questions and and fields of inquiry and i think the biggest one is just like how did they not know and if they knew why didn't they well i know why they didn't act um and, and then you can go from there to like how did james earl ray have these passports i mean i believe the uh house select committee on assassinations which exonerated the u.s government uh also found that ray was probably part of a conspiracy and i believe when he said when he, ple he pleads guilty, thinking he's avoiding the death penalty but there's really no death penalty in, in the nation at that time because the supreme court is getting ready to declare it unconstitutional so they got very bad legal advice on that one um his lawyer says, says, and this proves Ray wasn't part of a conspiracy. Ray jumps up and objects. So it, it does seem likely to me that, it, I mean, it seems two things seem fairly, fairly likely to me. A, that uh, it seems difficult to believe that Ray acted completely alone, given the resources he had, though perhaps not impossible and perhaps I'm over-exaggerating the sophistication of 1960s passports. I did see a French movie where they were all like 
switching their their pictures on passports to sneak communists into Spain. And these were not sophisticated people. So maybe it was very easy to do back then. I don't know. Um, and two, how did they not know about this? Um, and, you know, the FBI can actually be pretty myopic, right? I mean, neither one of these questions are conclusive, but they are really disturbing. And if you want to go from there and ask sort of, you know, even larger questions. Um, and, you know, Andrew Young, who was present at the assassination, is, is in the film, it's this point blank, he doesn't believe Ray did it. Um, and I, I think that's, I don't have the confidence to assert that, but I think it's a legitimate belief. I don't think it's like being like a Sandy Hook truther or something like that. I think it's a legitimate belief, and I think we should treat King's family and associates who, who hold this belief as people who are making a legitimate contribution to a to a subject of great historical importance. Yeah, I'm uh, trying to think of like, if you're not someone who is familiar with passports and how to alter them in the 1960s, you can't just Google how to how to you know alter passports. So you got to have some sort of know how about how to how to sneak it by authorities. But uh, maybe we shouldn't get too bogged down on the passport question. I, well, I, I will say this from personal experience. I know that friends of mine in high school would take a thin Sharpie and change the 86, on the six from the 86 on their passport into an 80. And they would use that at the liquor store to purchase alcohol. And it worked like a charm every time. But they wow. also looked older. I, first of all, I was born in 85. And second of all, at the time, I looked like I was born in like fucking 1991. So <laughs> it wouldn't have worked for what me. What happens when it, you try to travel with a passport that you've altered to buy beer? You just lick your thumb and oh, wipe it off. All right. That's smart. Yeah, that's pretty good. I think that's a little bit different than having two entirely fake Canadian passports. And I'm <laughs> just saying that passports might not be as sophisticated as you think. I think they are, Sam, but I also think the liquor store owner had a fiduciary interest in not asking a lot of questions <laughs> or your friend's passport. I mean, if your friends make it to Rhodesia, uh, I, I would, I would, or, or at least to London, at least to London, I'd, I'd add different questions. So wrapping this up, uh, Chip, watching the movie, uh, is today's FBI more similar or dissimilar to the FBI that existed uh, in the sixties and was finding all these reasons to surveil communists and uh, eventually trying to to create a, a dirt campaign against Martin Luther King. I think there's continuities. I think there's continuities and differences. I think the FBI clearly still finds ways to surveil people. Uh, most of the surveillance that takes place today is under the FBI's counterterrorism authorities. And the reasoning on paper is a little bit more sound, but like the level of the reasoning on paper and it's divorce from reality is such that it would indicate either the FBI is very, very clueless about knowing what is terrorism, what is speech, which, which maybe they are, or they are uh, cooking the books, so so to speak. Um, the type of surveillance against an individual where you are spying on their internal sexual habits and, and you know, sending fake letters about I don't know of any instances of that type of thing in the contemporary 
uh, era, like the dirty tricks of the Hoover era. I, I mean, they could be going on. We don't know about them. But, but I've, I've not ever seen evidence that they were replicated in any of the past eras. But the type of surveillance and the hostility towards dissent, especially black dissent, is, is very much still present in the FBI. I've, uh, I've heard it alleged that uh, the FBI in deep state is trying to smear Jimmy Dore and other leftists. So maybe their, their new target <laughs> is just uh, Jimmy Dore. They've moved on from MLK to people like to real threats. Like Jimmy Dore. You know, one thing I <laughs> Stop putting Chip in an awkward situation is that here. FBI is not... One of the things that F, people who do a lot of FBI scholarship and who I talk to always point out is that, you know, just because you're spied on by the FBI does not mean you are a, um, a serious... Or They spent a lot of time on the Baba Vakian people in the 70s. And, um, you know, the only other people besides the FBI who believed... And what they were doing was going to cause anything where, you know, the Baba Vakian people. So um, maybe they are. I don't know. Wouldn't wouldn't be wouldn't be out of character. Would not at all. Chip Gibbons. Check out his piece over uh, at Jacobin. Where can people see this movie? Is it streaming somewhere? It is. It is streaming on the usual suspects like Amazon. I don't want to promote Amazon, but it is, I think, technically at theaters right now. So you can't buy it you could only rent it which mm-hmm. is why i had to watch it if i just bought it, i would have just watched it once because i could watch it whenever i want but yeah. but he rented it for 3.99 or 6.99 i think Christ. i was forced to watch as many times as possible in a 48 hour period <laughs> you uh you really got amazon on that one you really... <laughs> i taught death Bezos a lesson he is uh reeling from it still there it is. Chip Gibbons, thanks so much for uh, for coming on the show this week.